Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. All right, Jason Mendelson, thank you so much for joining the show. Really excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. Jason, you have had an incredible career, and I know it continues, and we'll talk about that, but in particular, a very notable venture capitalist, co-founding member of, of Foundry Group, among other things. I'd love to start with the founding story for Foundry Group, because you've shared that with me in the past, and I think that you can look at what it is today. I think if I'm recalling correctly, you know, over 300 companies funded, many billions of dollars raised. You guys have SPACs and different sizes of funds now. And you recently retired from Foundry Group, but would love to understand the backstory on how you guys got started. Yeah, well, we were all met up right after the nuclear winter. Actually, most of us met up before the nuclear winter of 2000, with the first dot-com blow up. And we were all working for the same firm and we were all looking at this incredible madness of the run-up of 97 to 2000, where literally you couldn't do anything wrong, to post-2000, where you literally couldn't do anything right. And I mean, just the, the juxtaposition was just insane. And so, you know, the four of us were working a lot of things together. And then in you know 2006, we started a founder group and, you know, decided that we wanted something smaller, more nimble, something that we could control and do it a different way. And you know, the irony is we thought, oh, this is no big deal. We'll just go start our own firm and raise some money. And, you know, like every entrepreneur who's optimistic, things are a lot harder than you, you think. So it took us probably about, I'm trying to remember, about 18 months to actually raise the money. And that was kind of shocking to us. I think that was, we were like, huh, maybe we're not so popular after all. But we got the first fund raised in October of 2007. And then, you know, the rest has been history. It's been a great ride. And I had a great time while I was there. How big was that first fund? Well, it's funny. It was $225 million, which is a funny number because we tried to raise $175 million and raise zero for a long, long time. I'll never forget. It was March or April of, of 2007. I got a call on my cell phone, which at the time was a flip phone. I remember very distinctively pulling <laughs> it out of my pocket, flipping it open. I was at a, a conference and there was a gentleman named Chris Jacoby, who I love dearly, in Denver, works for AMG National Bank. And he said, Jason, we're in. And it was our first commitment. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. This is great. And I said, how much are you in for? And he said, 2.25 million. And I said, awesome. And part of me was super happy. And as I shut my phone, I realized, wait a minute, we're trying to raise 175 million. And it's taken me 18 months. And I've only got to, you know, 2.25. Oh my God, this is going to be even harder than I thought. But it was interesting. After he committed, we had another couple of investors commit. And then suddenly there was a rush to get in. And so we ended up capping the fund at 225, which became a magic number for us. And every fund we raised after that was either 225 or divisible evenly by 225. Very cool. What's the thought process like when you go that period of time trying to raise capital and it not working out? Because that's quite a long stretch. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was actually doing two things too. Obviously trying to, you know, co-found Foundry, but I was also, I had created my own startup during the same time. It was called SRS, which by the way, never ask a former lawyer to name a company. It was called Shareholder <laughs> Representative Services. And so I was starting this startup on the side too. And I was frankly, just so busy between those two activities and, you know, my, my bank account was certainly dwindling. Like, you know, we had the previous fund that we were all still at while we were trying to raise Foundry was paying us something. But, you know, the bank account certainly wasn't super happy, but it was so darn busy. I just kept my head down and just kept working really hard at it. And then when, you know, I would get depressed about one thing, like maybe I can't raise money at Foundry or maybe SRS is having a bad day, I'd focus on the other thing. And I would try to find some good in whatever I was doing. And finding the good in whatever I was doing would help mitigate the bad of what I was doing. Now you could say, I'm not a psychologist, you could say I was just trying to avoid 
but it worked for me and, and we got the job done. And, and so I'll take a little credit for figuring out what made me happy there. Very cool. I think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs often struggle with is potentially competing priorities or competing projects, particularly on the earlier side of things. How do you focus on the things that are making you happy? And did you ever worry during that period of time of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing too much and, and maybe none of it well, or those sorts of concerns? Well, at the time, I didn't. It took me until probably age 48 <laughs> to figure that equation out. I mean, I've always been very good professionally. I've had a lot of jobs. I've been a professional musician. I've been a lawyer. I've been a software engineer. I've been a consultant. And professionally, I've already always done really well. It's been everything else that I've sucked at. And I think what was what's funny is, is my narrative would have been traditionally, hey, I'm really great professionally. I'm really terrible at everything else. And my track record would prove that. And I think I, I had some epiphanies along the way. I think one of the epiphanies I had probably in the, I don't know, early 2010s, whatever you call it, the early 10s, not 1900s, I'm not that old. But in the early 10s, I had this realization that I had two totally different decision-making processes as far as our processes and so far as professional and personal decisions. And when I had this epiphany, I'm like, huh, so you make decisions completely differently professionally versus personally. And one of them works and one of them doesn't. Hmm. You know, okay, you smart VC who gives advice all day long. <laughs> Maybe you should look in the damn mirror. And then as far as your question, as far as doing too much, I don't really think that hit me until I got in my late forties. I, I used to have an infinite amount of energy and an infinite amount of curiosity and the world was interesting. And then at some point I got a little tired and I said, Oh my God, I have to time allocate. Now I actually can't run at this speed. And that's when I really started looking at, wow, how am I spending my time and where am I effective and where am I not? And when I'm my least effective is when I don't think and I just execute. I'm the guy who goes to bed at Embargo Zero every night. And sometimes you get in too much of an execution mindset, which I've seen plenty of entrepreneurs do as well. And you forget to be thoughtful sometimes. Very cool. Jason, I'd love to get more into that personal professional balance, but I want to go back to the founding story. I think the firm that you were with before Foundry Group was Mobius, if I'm not mistaken. And that was at the time SoftBank's venture capital arm. It was one of their, yeah, they had an East Coast later stage fund and we were the early stage So yeah, we were originally, the company I joined was called SoftBank Venture Capital, which we eventually changed the name to Mobius one day. And is that, I mean, do you see Mobius as kind of the predecessor to Vision Fund these days, or or do you think it's too long and not enough connection to to think that way? I think Masa has always been a bet the farm type of guy. He was back then, he's always had these Grand visions and his ability to take risk and be comfortable with it is unparalleled, I think. So whether SoftBank Venture Capital had anything to do with his business plan provision fund, I'll never know. But I will say that I've seen him many times over his career bet everything on something. Sometimes he gets it right. Sometimes he gets it wrong. You know, if you believe the rumors, there's been some dark days of, you know, are the banks going to call and is this thing over sort of thing. But he, you know, so far has always seemed to come out. It's like the exact opposite of Warren Buffett. I mean, you know, it's, and I think, I think he and Warren, if they had lunch together, they'd be like, so what do we talk about? (laughs) See the world in very different ways. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about how we like the Vichy Swaz, I guess. But, you know, as far as business, I'm not really sure what they would talk about. So when you first heard about the the Vision Fund mandate was... That sounds like probably wasn't that big of a surprise to you. I mean, a lot of what he's done has surprised me. I thought the Vision Fund was a surprise and and I frankly chuckled at it. You know, it was not a it was not a strategy that I thought would work. You know, there got a lot of press, as many things do in the venture capital industry. A lot of things in the VC world get press that don't deserve it. I thought, you know, look, you put a number that big, it's gonna get picked up in the press. It just never made sense to me on how it was gonna you know, scale or not scale, or how are they going to find, you know, companies to invest in, you know, we had several competitors of companies that we invest in get funded by SoftBank Vision Fund. And, you know, the first day it's terrifying, right? Oh my God, they just raised a hundred million dollars. And then the third day you hear they fired the entire management team and they're putting in their people. 
And you're like, okay, well, if you're going to try to make a PE, you know, sort of private equity uh, world out of this, good luck with that. But that's hard. And, yeah. you know, it's two things. One, writing a check is one thing, knowing how to help the company is another thing. And I think they were mostly checked. And we'll see. I mean, it's way too early to determine if, if I'm right or wrong about their business model. In the small world department, I think one of the, the later portfolio companies in Mobius was a company called LRN, mm-hmm. originally Legal Research Network. And that was the first company that I interned for. And the CEO of that company became a, a mentor of mine. So that's oh, funny. Yeah. Uh, Dove Sideman. Yeah. yeah. It's funny yeah. how uh, these things uh, work, small world. I remember the company very well. As a former lawyer, I used to you know stick my nose in there from time to time. I, I'm sure. Well, Jason, I'd love to sort of switch gears because I think, you know, you, you mentioned the the Vision Fund challenges. Foundry Group obviously has had a ton of success, but you invest or you've historically been investing in a very stochastic world where sort of uh, n- notorious for not having a very high success rates, but your successes make up for the failures. And I think Venture in general is pretty good at sort of quietly bearing their debt, if you will. What do you recall any sort of notable failures or missteps and how that shaped the foundry group mentality or investing ethos? Yeah, I mean, if you look at sort of where our ethos came from at Foundry, it was things we learned at Mobius. And there there were probably a few handful of companies that really sort of set how we were going to engage. One was a company I was involved in called Stratify, originally called Purple Yogi. They had created technology that could automatically go through data and categorize it and had this vision that they were going to create these personal web pages, you know, home pages on the internet, very early days, right? You're going to go to the, you know, log in and instead of just a generic Yahoo screen, you're going to have a screen that only talks about things that you care about. And the company was a failure. And, but tr- I truly believed in the management team. And truly believe in the CEO. And he went back and came up with an idea. Hey, wait a minute. Why don't I just read legal docs automatically and categorize those and tell you what's in there? And it was one of the first what's called e-discovery companies. And it was a huge success, huge hit. And so there was a couple of things we learned. One is if you still believe in the CEO, even if the company's not working, maybe there's something else to do there. You hear this term pivot a lot in, in venture, which I hate. I think that one of the ethos is we're good with a pivot so long as we believe in the CEO and the management team. You know, there were companies like Postini, which was one of the first spam companies that was sold to Google. We did a series C round at Mobius, but it was a down round. Nobody else would touch it. The valuation had gone down. Nobody wants to do a down round, blah, 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 blah. And we had the conviction to do it. And that turned out to be a huge win when they sold to Google. So again, going back to the, if you trust the people, don't give it up too early. The converse is true, though. You know, if you're not in love with the management team, don't keep putting money in it. And I think, you know, one of the things we tried to be was blunt with our management teams, like, hey, if we support you, we're all in. And if we don't, we're not. (laughs) We won't play this middle ground that I think a lot of investors do. So I think, you know, we learned from the Mobius days as a, hey, this is how we think this should work. Who knows if we're right? I mean, that's the thing about venture. It takes you, you know, 30 years probably to, to really look back and say, hey, which firms did well and not, but you know, so far so good. So to have a strong stance, I think with people where you say, hey, you know, we've got your back if we support you and if yeah. not, goodbye. I mean, that's, I would imagine that is a, a hard one psychological stance to take oftentimes. Were there particular experiences that you had that, that cemented that for you and your partners of we've got to stay committed to this concept? Yeah. I mean, look, first of all, I don't want him to get the impression that we just show up one day and say, we don't believe in you, you're out. Sure. Like these are not single conversations. These are multiple conversations. And I would tell you that the thing that surprises me the most or surprised me the most is what percentage of times were you going to have that really difficult conversation and you're just dreading it. Like you don't sleep the night before you're up. You're like, Oh God, I got to tell John, I don't want, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure his leadership's right here, blah, 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 blah. And you walk in and you start the conversation and John's face is all, you know, wrapped around. Oh my God. And then you see this tremendous sigh as he says, I've been thinking the same things. And then you have this big laugh and you're like, oh my God, really? He's like, yeah, he says, I think I'm over my head too. Like we got to get somebody in here. 
that actually was the vast majority of those discussions, which surprised me and delighted me because I think it showed that we hired the right people just because, you know, uh, you're great at a starting CEO doesn't mean you're great to scale or whatever. And it doesn't make, mean I don't like you any less, but a lot of times those discussions were a lot easier, which then confirmed, okay, we did bet on the right human being here. It's the ones where you go in there and it turns into a screaming match or crying match or somebody slamming the table or walking away or bringing their lawyers or whatever. And I've had those too. And those are the real disappointing ones where you realize that whatever issues you're currently having are but a detail and about a symptom of a mystery made. You bet on the wrong person. When you think about betting on people, I would imagine that's a a hard-won mental model that's developed over time. But how do you think about that? How do you evaluate initially? And then how do you think about continuing to evaluate besides just, you know, somebody hitting their numbers or doing what they say they're going to do? Well, I can only tell you what I think today because my model continues to evolve over time. And we could probably talk for two hours about evaluating people. I mean, for me, you know, when I was younger, it was a checklist and it was an intellectual exercise and it was, you know, do they have domain expertise and do they have a good team and blah, blah, blah. You know, if I had gone to business school, it was probably stuff they would have taught me there. And then over time you become more mature and you start trusting your other senses. And, you know, as I like to say that, you know, venture capital is a little bit like going on a first date. Like think about when you go on a first date and you get that, that excitement of, Oh my God, I mean this new person and I'm totally inspired by them. You know, it's, it's not the, there's no sexual tension, but feeling that energy of meeting somebody new and that excitement and that intensity and that, Oh my gosh, I can't wait till we hang out again sort of thing. And we've had that with, you know, with platonic relationships, like listening to that part, which was something that I was great at listening to in parts of my life, but I didn't allow, I was like, well, that's not professional. Yeah, that is professional. You know, learning like tips along the way, just because somebody's nice doesn't mean they're a good person. There's plenty of super nice people out there who are not good people. And, you know, it's a model that continually changes. And I would say that I became more effective and, and better at it as I allowed myself to both use my heart and my mind to come to these decisions and sort of like writing a song, it just kind of comes to you. Like you can sit down to write a song, but you can only force it so much. And I would say when you sit down to analyze an entrepreneur, you can only force that, an that analysis so much. Sometimes you just got to listen to what's going on in the gut and say, why do I have a red flag? Like what is there? Like everything on paper is perfect. And like, I can't even point to it. You know, when I was younger, I would probably say, eh, that doesn't matter. And as I'm older, I'm like, wait a minute, you have to track down this red flag. Like, you've got to figure this out. By the way, it doesn't mean it's always a no. You just have to figure out what that red flag is and then address it. Have there been any instances where you've been really surprised, either negatively or, or positively, you know, without necessarily uh, naming any names, but notable sort of hard-won learning experiences like that? Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of just randomness on the positive side and the negative side that even when I look like I look back and I go, my goodness, that was an incredible CEO, you know, or my gosh, I can't believe he stole money from the company. And I mean, and, and that's a real case. Like we had a case yeah. where we had a husband and a wife team and they were literally stealing money from the company. And you can't, even in hindsight, I go, what would I've done differently? And in those cases, I still don't know. And I still sort of rack my brain and go, what, what did I miss? You know, and I'm sure somebody can figure it out, but I can't. But there's that random part. And then there's the 80% of the surprises where you look back and you say, okay, why did this surprise me on either the up or the down? And there's, there's usually something that, you know, for me that I broke in my decision-making process. And sometimes you're the benefit of it. And sometimes it's to, you know, your detriment, but I usually can point to and say, you know, I knew that. I knew it. Oh God, I knew it. You know, and it's again, like, you know, trying to bring it to a level of 
you know, to people who haven't walked in my shoes, it's no different than personal relationships. Like you have a friendship that blows up or a relationship that blows up and you sit there and you look in the mirror and you go, I knew that was happening. Like, and you know, you hit your head slightly up against the mirror and you move on. It's the exact same thing. And you and your partners, Brad in particular, you've spent a lot of time writing and uh, sharing content in the fields of entrepreneurship and, and venture capital and you've spent a lot of time writing articles around the standardization of legal docs and how to think about starting companies up. And I know uh, you had one post in particular that I think is interesting. You said, you know, and this was, I, I think, years ago, but you had a lot of attention paid towards sort of all of the startup documentation. But you wrote one about when to wind the company down. And so I, I'm curious, you know, in your experience, particularly in, in a field that celebrates the pivot, what are the sort of metrics or circumstances where it makes sense to say, hey, we, let's just call it a day and everyone should just move on to something else? Yeah, I, it's funny that you, you say that the pivot is celebrated because it is. I wish failure were celebrated a little more because failing yeah. the right way is more attractive to me than pivoting and losing. You know, if you fail the right way and you come to me and say, you know what, I don't think this thing's working. Let me return some of your money and let's move on. Like, that's incredibly bold. I mean, that's incredibly courageous. And so I would tell anybody who's out there running a company who's taking investors that, you know, going to sleep at night and when you've got this investor capital and you want to return it, you know, that's such a burden to live with. You know, I've been there as a, a startup founder, but it's even a bigger burden when it's $0 back, but better than zero is still better than zero. And so first rule is if the founders or management team or CEO's heart's not in it, it's time to wind the company down, like it, you know, or sell it or whatever you can do, but it's done. Like trying to force a tired, exhausted management team through another two or three year cycle, it just doesn't work. And I find too many investors are not empathetic with that. It's like, hey, you took my money, you work for me, you got to do this, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can try to you know, push a string up a hill, but it doesn't work. Uh, actually, that's not true. Now that I think about it, you can't push a, a string straight up a hill because you can eventually wad it up in a ball and push it up a hill. I'm never using that metaphor again. How about you can't push water up the hill? Yeah. You know, so that's one. As far as, you know, and I would say in my experience about half the time, thankfully, mercifully, the management team, the CEO saw it that way. And then the other half is, look, you've been through this much money. You've never hit any target. The market doesn't seem like it's developing. Or there was three other people who joined the market right after you got funded and they're kicking your butt. Let's find something else to do or let's find a home. You know, we all know this is going to zero. The slow descent into terrain is not, a, uh, is not an attractive strategy. And it strikes me as, you know, in, in all of these conversations, you're very much playing the mentor, educator, advice giver role. Psychologist. Psychologist with, you know, in, in many respects seems to be the venture capitalist identity or, or at least when it's done right. And you've also spent an enormous amount of time in the educational uh, side of things at CU Boulder, you know, with Techstars, the Kaufman Fellows. What role do you feel like education plays in, you know, the both your place in, in the community and also in, in venture in general? I think that, you know, we, the four of us who started Foundry, sort of grew up in a venture world of no information. Everything was in a black box. You know, that was the reason we wrote the book Venture Deals. That was the reason we did the Kaufman stuff. You know, part of Techstars and open sourcing that was about this thirst of trying to destroy the black box, trying to destroy the closed system that frankly preyed on the entrepreneur to the benefit of the investors. And so, you know, I've always been a teacher. I mean, one of my first jobs was teaching drums in, in Detroit. So I've always have had that sort of desire in me to see if I can impart any little piece of nugget to somebody who's smarter, better, and stronger than me so that they can, you know, reach their goals. But it was very concerted effort of us versus them. And the us was the people who wanted everybody to know all the information versus them that wanted to arbitrage on their information advantage and take advantage of entrepreneurs. So 
I certainly think the first, you know, X years, however many that is, it was a thought of, hey, this is how it should be. Then the industry swung completely that way. And it was information overload from everywhere. And hey, look at me and look at my book and look what I can do and blah, 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 blah. And I don't know where it stands right now. It, 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 we may have swung the other direction. And, and I'll, you know, I'm looking at myself in, you know, in the mirror saying this, is there so much information out there that there's just too much and it's not helpful? And who's this information for? Is it just for the benefit of the information givers? And you know, it depends. I think everybody's got their own story, their own reason. You know, I've kind of gone back to the future in a way. I, you know, I've been an adjunct professor at CU for 11 years. And it was very strange going from a sort of internet you know, one to many to now I'm teaching in the classroom with four walls and a set number of small students. And I got to tell you, I, I really like that, actually, the intimacy. I mean, COVID notwithstanding, it's been a terrible year, but there's just something special about looking at somebody's face when the light bulb goes on and they raise their hand and they ask you the killer question and you realize, yes, you got it. The feedback loop is like adrenaline. It's to me, it's almost not quite, but it's almost as cool as when I'm on stage in a band and something really good happens and the audience is looking up like, oh my God, did you hear that? I'm like, yeah, I'm the guy who made the noise. You know, like, you know, it's sort of one of those moments. And I think we all need sort of, we all need different uh, parts of that. And for me, I like that performance and I like that instant gratification. It's awesome. It, it seems like, you know, entrepreneurship and investing is such an empirical pursuit. And there's increasingly, to your point, uh, a lot of educational resources. And I, I know for, for my own journey, you know, going from learning a lot of things theoretically or from, <laughs> you know, from experts who have done it themselves, you understand concepts maybe intellectually, but it takes you going out in the world, stubbing your toe, evaluating things for yourself, creating your own mental models to really then say, oh, wow, that's, I understand that in a different way now. Mm -hmm. How do you think, or, or I guess, how would you encourage your students or people who you're teaching in a classroom to appreciate the difference between, you know, learning something in textbook versus going out in the world and starting to apply it? You know, it's so funny you asked that question. I was just having this discussion the other day and I, I'm, I have a very loose theory that I'll put out there in public, which is probably wrong. I can't wait till somebody you know calls you and complains about this. <laughs> I think your point of book learning versus real wor world sort of works on a scale. So I'll pick on music again. If you really are amazing book learned musician, you probably can go play in a band or an orchestra or whatever and you know, it's always going to be weird getting out there live and playing, but you're going to be okay. You know, you're, you're going to need some experience, but you'll be all right. If you learned your part in a vacuum, in a practice room, and you go out there, you may not win any awards, but it's going to be all right. On the total opposite end of the spectrum, there's venture capital investing. There are books, there are classes, there's idiots like me telling you how to do it. <laughs> and at the same time, when it comes to the actual practice, there's almost no way of training anyone. I mean, they've always said that venture is an apprentice business where you go, you know, there's jokes about, well, you're not a good venture investor until you've blown up $40 million, right? And you're just, you know, you, you hear these things and you're like, but that's wrong. I should be able to learn that. Yeah. But it's such a nuanced thing. And some people, it doesn't matter how long they apprentice, they never get it. And there's never been a definitive book. And by the way, there's not even a career path. You know, how do I become a VC? I don't know. Well, how did you become a VC? <laughs> completely random. Like yeah. every VC is completely random. And so that's the other end of the spectrum. And then somewhere in the middle of this is how to do a startup. And it leans more closely to the VC side. But I feel more confident that there's decent data in how to run a successful company than there is in how to be a good investor. And so, you know, when I think, you know, look, I've been a software engineer. I got to tell you, maybe that's even to the other side of music. I learned in a vacuum how to program. They stuck me in front of a computer and said, program in the real world. And everything was fine. <laughs> I decided to figure out where to go, you know, get burritos for lunch. That was the biggest stress I had. Yeah. So I think there's this scale. And I think that as the scale tilts toward the most unknown, you get more people hypothesizing and writing and saying, hey, this is how you do it. And I kind of chuckle. I'm like, 
okay, I'm, I'm glad your, you know, your one or two or 10 experiences led you to this grand conclusion, but that's an, in, you know, insignificant statistical sample size. Yeah. Yeah. It's reminiscent a little bit of the book range by David Epstein that I'm a big fan of, but, but he goes into to talk about quite a bit on, on how, you know, whether you're a musician or an investor or anything else, quite often the, the greats have just a variety of different experiences that happen to coalesce into, into something that, that winds up connecting at the right place, right time and, and giving you that background that makes sense. Yeah. No, nobody gets to great without a tremendous amount of luck yeah. and, and, and a tremendous amount of, I don't know how I got here. And <laughs> anybody who's great, who thinks they haven't figured out why they got there, the only thing that's great is their ego. Yeah. And ego, I would imagine, is something that you've come into contact with quite a bit in your line of work. Certainly, a lot of notorious egos in, in the venture world, in the entrepreneurship world. How do you, how have you combated that in, in your career? Because I would imagine that can be a toxic force if you let it. Well, I retired. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's, there's one way to combat it. So you don't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah. You know, when I, I it, it was, I, I, look, I sound like the old curmudgeon back in my day. It was a different <laughs> world when I started in the late nineties. Right. I mean, everybody knew everybody. It was totally reputationally constrained. Like you didn't dare do anything wrong because you would be cast out of the party. And the jobs were so rare and the ecosystem was so small that you were like, I don't want to be cast out of this party. And so there was a lot more, I would say, civility and reputational constraints. And then like anything, it gets big and it gets politicized and it gets sensationalized on television and newspapers and people are stars now. It's not just that you're rich, but you're famous and there was, there's a whole different incentive base now for people who are in the ecosystem. And I know, I don't think I ever really grew up. I don't think I grew into it. I think that me, the egos, you know, it's okay to be confident. It's really okay. In fact, that's really attractive, but there's so much of the, you know, the, I, this is because of me, I did this. I'm the smartest person in the room, you know? And then, the next level is I'm also super self-aware and I'm smart and I'm woke and I'm this and I'm the smartest person in the room. And, you know, there's this, there's a lot of, I mean, if you think about social media, you think about the industry, there's so much, you know, back, back padding and so many press clippings that if you read your own press clippings, you can destroy yourself. And there's a lot of that. And, you know, it's hard to keep it. Fortunately at Foundry, we had very few instances of that because that was something we screened for, but it's not, doesn't mean there's an absence of it. And it doesn't mean it's not pervasive in the ecosystem. You know, every conference you go to every, you know, event you go to, it's, you know, me and, you know, I grew up in Detroit. Like I, I'm just a music. I, look, I, I self-identify as dumb drummer from Detroit. So, you know, I'm already feeling like I'm playing make believe here. This is just not, you know, this is just not my people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you get uh, to do the music full time. Well, I did until about, so it's March 18th. I did until about March 1. Okay. Uh, then I took this full-time job with the attorney general's office in Colorado, working on a uh, prison reform initiative, specifically a reentry program to look at the feasibility and implementation of trying to create a program that allows people to have a fair chance once they leave prison, which is something very near and dear to my heart. But I'm now a full-time and worker at the AG's office with the actual email and everything. So it's super exciting, super, super different. And, you know, all, you know, I'm, I'm just learning the ropes of politics and all that stuff. And so far they're very low. We have a wonderful attorney general and Phil Weiser who I've known since 2006 and is a dear friend. And, you know, when you look, you know, you look at people doing things for the right reasons, that, that guy's the real deal, right? He's a true public servant. So that's, uh, you know, music's still going to be super important. I'm going to be working as much as I can for your listeners out there. I got to plug it. My stage name is Jace Allen, J-A-C-E, Allen, A-L-E-N. I'm on all major streaming services and YouTube. I've got about three songs out right now, album to drop later uh, this month or next month. And so we'll go from there. And don't make the same mistake I did. It, it is not under Jason's given name. It is under Jace Allen. Yes, there were too many other Jason Mendelsons. By the way, very nice uh, guys, by the way. We were, the three of us had joked we were going to start a 
band called the Jason Mendelssohn's trio <laughs> and not put the apostrophe or, and, and people would be like, there's a typo. We're like, we're all, we all have the same name. <laughs> That's great. Well, love your music. It's really cool that, that you went and you did that. And you've had a special producer, if I'm not mistaken on some of your work. Is that right? Well, the first single I put out, uh, Matt Sorum, the drummer for Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver, who's become a dear friend, uh, helped me produce it, which was great. And then the album is going to be called Taking Sides. The title track of the album was actually produced by my former business partner, Seth Levine, who basically came up with, you know, he and I came up with the idea of the song and then, you know, I put it together, but he was incredibly helpful there. That's awesome. You had a, a band, I guess, also with your other partner, Ryan. Is that I right? I did. We had a band called Legitimate Front. It was a 10-piece funk band with a horn section, and it was a great party band. Obviously, we, it's funny. We played February 7th, uh, and I'll never forget it. It was my brother's birthday, 2020 in Utah. And who knew that was going to be the last gig, right? It, you know, and trying to get 10 pe- people into a room during COVID is not going to happen. I've since co-founded another band called Gen 3 which is four people, much more COVID friendly. We have played a couple of shows and I were playing in the middle of June at the Dairy Center in Boulder. If you go on their events page, we play outside on the loading dock. It's socially spaced outside. We've done the show once before. It's great. And so I think that's going to be the band going forward for me. Awesome. What, what does music do for you that your previous professional pursuits have not? Is there a different inch being scratched or is it sort of more similar than you might think? Completely different, but it's also got some of the same things, same characteristics if you look back at it. So look, music has been the first love of my life. I fell in love with music before I can, you know, really remember much going on. I remember stories of me playing drums that I don't even remember being that old. And so music has always been that center to me. Music's always been where I run to when I'm happy and when I'm sad. And Every girlfriend that I broke up with, uh, that probably meant a new band was coming and, you know, that would alleviate the pain. It's always been that to me. And it's my drug of choice. Now, it's not all good. It's frustrating as hell, like venture, and that most of what you do fails. And so, you know, in venture, you know, people are like, wow, how do you get used to that? You know, half the companies don't work out or more. And I'm like, well, you know. It's sort of, it's a longer version of when I go to try to write a song and I'm, oh my God, in the beginning, you know, it's like adventure. In the beginning, when you make the investment, you're like, this is the best thing ever. It's the same thing. I get this song idea in my head and I start writing it or charting it or playing on the guitar. And I'm like, oh my God, it's the best thing I've ever written. And then like a week passes and you're like, well, you know, I'm having a hard time getting through, you know, the entrepreneurs <laughs> having a hard time selling. I'm having a hard time writing the bridge. And the next thing you force the song done and you're like, this sucked. You know, and so there's that frustration. There's that constant reminder of failure. But, you know, like venture and like music, when you get a good one and you're like, oh, man, that's great. And you go listen to it five years from now and 10 years from now. And you're like, man, I still love that song. You know, I'll plug. I I wrote a song recently that I'm really proud of, actually. I, I released it on Valentine's Day. I surprised my wife. I said, honey, happy Valentine's Day. I wrote a song for you and I made a YouTube video and it's live and it's called Pissed Off at You. And her look on Valentine's morning as she's drinking her coffee was, <laughs> I don't it was horror, confusion, anger. I don't know what it was, but it was a song about a guy who's so happy that he can no longer write good songs. It's a great song. And, and so he's pissed off. And so it's, <laughs> and I did like a cheesy video with the tux and the, and the microphone. So, I, you know, go check it out if you if you want to see something funny, but it was a funny song and, you know, it's so funny when you do a song, you spend so much time getting it together, just like venture. You spend so much time in the upfront and then it launches to the world. And then you take a breath and you never want to hear the song again. Like I've probably listened to that song a thousand times trying to tweak it, make it sound right, but get it exactly how I want it. And I, and, and, and it came on, I was listening to Spotify and it came on. I was like, Oh my God, this is really cool. It just came on Spotify. And I listened to it the other day. I'm like, you know, this is a really good song. <laughs> like, it is a good like, song, yeah. like, like this one, you know, 10 years from now, I'm going to go back and say, yeah, that was a good one. So it feeds my, to, to go back to the long-winded answer, and I'm sorry, it feeds my creation need. I always yeah. need to create. It feeds my ego when I'm successful and keeps me in check when I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and it keeps reminding me that I'm not very good. 
<laughs> and then I need to keep work harder because no matter how good I am, I will suck compared to the masters. Yeah. So it's a good thing to do. Everyone, everyone needs that reminder of nobody cares work harder, I suppose. Nobody cares. <laughs> well, it is an awesome song. So I recommend everyone go check Thanks. it out. Jason is the, the role of the producer seems like it would, you know, a very similar role to that of the, the VC. Is that a fair uh, conclusion or each? It is, except the producer didn't put the $3 million in the company and can't ultimately tell you what to do. <laughs> but in a normal working in a well-working relationship, the producer is your go-to like that's your confidant, that's your right arm. And, you know, I'm, you know, I've, I'm trying to think how many albums I've probably been on a dozen albums and I've done three or four either with myself or bands, but I, the one that's coming out later this year is the first album that I've done in probably 15 years. And prior all albums were, there were no producers, right? You wrote the song, you recorded it yourself, you produced it yourself, you put it out there, you saw what stuck. This album has been the only album that not only if I had two real producers on two of the seven tracks, but all of the tracks have had some production help from outside resources. And you're right. It's like, I am the 21 year old first time CEO who's got some awesome venture capitalist on my board. Who's like been there, done that scene. It's like, Hey, if we do this, it's awesome. And you, your song comes back to you and you're like, Oh my God, that's my song. Yeah. Like I did that, but Holy moly production is amazing. And I think what's, curious about it is you look at somebody like Matt Sorum, who's, you know, he's in a rock and roll hall of fame to watch him produce a song that is not in his genre and to see how all the skills are transferable or to find that Seth Levine, you know, VC from foundry who plays cello, a little bit of guitar and an ultimate musical fantasy is to sing wanted dead or alive at red rocks because <laughs> favorite song and he wants to do a cover and I want to make that happen for him one day, but to see what he was able to add. And I was just shocked and it totally changed my arrogance, if you will, that, Hey, you know, Seth's not in a band. Seth's not this. What could somebody like Seth add to this? But because he's a curious consumer of music and he's a thoughtful guy and he's really detailed, he came back and said, here's 12 comments. And I was like, Oh my God. And, you know, it was like, I would have never done this if it hadn't been for him. And I mean, big stuff, you know, tempo's wrong. You need a break here. No, this, uh, add this, like, like not just general, Hey, I like it. And so I've, I'm now, you know, it's funny. I used to laugh at the entrepreneurs who wanted to keep their VCs at bay and their board at bay and, you know, run it all on their own and be like, come on, I'm great. You want my help? And now, of course, I look in the mirror and go, huh, that's exactly how I was as a musician. I was insular and I knew everything and I'm so good. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh my God, where do I find producers for everything? Yeah, that's cool. Jason, you mentioned your new role with, in Phil Weiser's office, Attorney General of Colorado, working on prison reform. I'd love to understand more about how that how that became a cause that's near and dear to your heart and, and, you know, what role Defy Ventures played in that? Yeah. So I was one of the co-founders of Defy Colorado, which is an in-prison training program that seeks to teach entrepreneurial mindsets to people who are incarcerated. The theory of the case, not to sound too much like a lawyer, is that if you teach people that they can be entrepreneurs, not necessarily need to start up, you know, create a startup, but that they have, can have an entrepreneurial mindset, be the entrepreneurs of their own lives to have some control. It'll make them more curious, happier, more vulnerable, better humans, both inside the four walls of the prison that they're in and when they get out. And it's been a tremendously successful program. The people who have gone out, you know, and as opposed to a 60% recidivism rate, it's 2%. The people who are still in, instead of being in level five, Security or level two security and they're and the gangs are breaking up inside the prisons and people are, you know, all jazzed about these programs. And so the program is super successful. But what really interests me is the amount of talent that is inside prison. I mean, until you've been there and I know you've been there, you're like, 
whoa, this is way more normal than I thought it would be if I extract that everybody over there has the same clothing on and there's a lot of guns and bulletproof glass. And, you know, as long as you don't yeah. look at the clothes and you don't look at the, the sort of their surroundings and you're just speaking to people, mm-hmm. it's shocking how much talent is, is in there. It and, is. and it's shocking what percentage of these people never had a chance. I, I keep, you know, look, there's a lot of people who use the term second chance. And what I realized is half of these people had no chance. Yeah. Parents were dead by they were eight. Gang picks them up and says, here's your food and your water. Here's your job. They go, great. That's not a chance. Yeah. That was a one-way ticket to jail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, and it's such a family thing too, right? I mean, you got a 75% chance of ending up in jail if one of your parents was in jail. And so it just sucks. And it's terrible. Right. And you get in there and you give just a little bit. And, you know, I'm like, wow, it, yeah, these people are smart. They're engaged. They're sponges. They're focused on change. And so, you know, in the United States, we have this term that you pay your debt to society. I kind of have this theory that that's bullshit. It's a scarlet letter. You go and you're done. And it doesn't matter if you've been there for 18 months or 20 years. Society never treats you the same. And so I'm exploring things with the attorney general's office to see what we can potentially do. And we're really early in the process and, you know, I've got a, a great team around me and I'm really excited about it, but it's just something that it's just unjust and it makes me angry. And I would say for any potential employers out there, you know, you find that people who have been justice involved are actually harder working, harder working, more loyal because they've got a lot more to lose if that job doesn't work out and they know it. And they've seen the other side. They know what happens when that job goes away and that they can't support, you know, their families and what they got to do. So I'm very passionate about it. I'm super, super excited to, to see what we can do here. I am super appreciative of, of Phil giving me this opportunity. And, you know, who knows, maybe six months or 12 months from now, we'll do a little follow-up and I can tell you more about it. Because I got a lot of things in my brain, but I'm, I'm going to keep them to myself right now. Well, that, that would be awesome. And I have to say, having been to one of the Defy Venture events at Colorado Penitentiary here, just being in that environment where, to your point, if you take away the clothes and you take away the surroundings, it, it's like, in many respects, like any other sort of community discussion, if you're at a school or something like that, mm-hmm. talking about you know entrepreneurialism and, and investing. But the fact that you go home after that, and they all stay there. And there are these casual comments that are made, you know, about this is my business plan for, you know, when I get out in five years, 15 years, 20 years, or right. here's my business plan. And I'm not, you know, they're not letting me out of here. I mean, it's just, it, it, it was a very impactful experience. So, well, that's the thing, right? I mean, you think, you know, what you're getting into and then I think the thing about being in prison is when I go home, I'm like, so who learned more today? Was them or me? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think, you know, the other thing we've been talking about in in this conversation is how important, you know, failures, mistakes, pivoting is in, in, in an entrepreneurial environment. And each one of these people are, are folks that have made in some cases really profound life mistakes but by the same token, they have the benefit of the learning and the growth that comes from those mistakes. And if there's truly a, a debt to society to be paid, then, you know, shouldn't we create an environment where they can go share their learning and share their growth as opposed to, you know, essentially being minimalized? One, one, one would think they, yeah. they, they do have wisdom that we do not, as you will attest to when you go home and, and I'm seriously, who learned more today, them or me? And you're like, I learned a lot. Well, guess what? That's being wasted right now. Everything you learned, you had to drive three and a half hours to Canyon city. If you went to CSP. Yep. And, that's where I went. Yeah. And you were in a little glass box. And I mean, the funny story about that, by the way, the first CSP event we ever did, we had room for 20. We call them EITs, entrepreneurs and trained. So 20 people who are incarcerated to join the program. And they, and in the first time we did it, we didn't have the applications. We didn't, we just sort of let the prison pick the people. And we said, give us 10 of your best and 10 of your worst. And they were like, you sure about that? We're like, yep, 10 of your best, 10 of your worst. And so we show up and 
if you had paid me a trillion dollars and said, identify the 10 best or 10 worst, I would not be able to do that. Program went great. By the end of the program, the 10 worst are now part of their 20 best and their lives have been changed. But what we find out later is that they were so scared that they had a team of 12 people in full tackle gear right outside the (laughs) room we were in case something went wrong. So, you know, occasionally it's, but by the way, it was interesting because the COs, the correction officers learned and the the prison learned that, hey, wait a minute. Like there's a different way to incentivize these guys. Like we had nothing to worry about. There was, you know, never any incidents or anything. Yeah. Well, and I think in, in some cases you hear about gang leaders or, you know, other crime figures that, that do go to prison and you hear about their, their life stories, their track records. And you think, gosh, these guys are phenomenal entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, you know, it was focused on things that are illegal because of the, the way that they grew up. But my goodness, they're resourceful. And some of these people who had some drug empires, I mean, if nothing else, I know they understand accounting. (laughs) For sure. Well, I'd love to do a a follow-up a year from now and talk more because I think that there's, you know, we can do a whole other episode just on that and the incentives that are in place and what you found in um, in your new role. So Jason, I'd, I'd love to go kind of finish on something that you brought up at the start of the conversation And you mentioned that you came to a point where you said, gosh, I'm really good at making (laughs) professional decisions. I'm not so good at making personal decisions. Could you expand on that a little bit and how you came to that conclusions and what you've done about it? Yeah. So I, it's funny. I I had a, I had a hard childhood. I just, let's just call it spade. I don't know who my dad is. My mom uh, passed away when I was 17. I've got a wonderful family 2.0, my adoptive father and and his wife, there was addiction issues. There was, you know, um, a whole bunch of stuff growing up and it was a tough slog. And I think out of that, I was wired and this, this, I'm going to give this nature over nurture, but I was wired to get myself out of that situation. And my original business plan was become an amazing drummer, get in rock band, go on tour, leave home. (laughs) And it worked. And so I've always been very driven to not starve because there've been points in my life where I've been hungry and to have my own financial freedom so that I was safe because I didn't grow up in the safest of sort of situations. And so what I think I got programmed to succeed, but not programmed real well on all the sort of life stuff. And, you know, if I look back and I say, well, boy, I'm rocking. Everything I touch professionally turns to gold, but you know, why do all my, my, you know, my girlfriend, you know, my romantic relationship blow up or why do I keep picking the wrong people who are doing bad things to me? Or, you know, why do friends come and go out of my life and why? It was, I think it was 2011 that I had the epiphany of holy moly, I'm really good professionally and really crappy personally. And I said, well, what the hell do I do about that? So I actually went on this thing called the internet and I used a service called Google and I started (laughs) like looking at decision-making and blah, blah, blah. And I found a gentleman in Boulder who's a licensed therapist that talked on his website about helping decision-making, especially for executives. And he had a special he and his wife are both therapists. He had a special specialty, not only in couples, but also in what he called men's work. And I still to this day don't know what that is, but his name is Jeff Pincus. He's had one of the most tremendous impacts on me of any person on this planet. And I worship him for it. Although he would, he would cringe if he heard that word. So maybe I don't worship you, Jeff, but like, I really appreciate him. And he was very quickly able to deconstruct the actual decision-making processes. And I remember I was sitting on the first day with him and he talked to me about my confidence in decision-making professionally. You know, these big, bold risks I take, you know, I make venture investments. I put myself out there on stage in a band. I sing the national anthem at Wrigley Field. I do these crazy things. And he said, so have you ever walked up to a, a woman in a bar and asked her out? And I said, no. <laughs> and he would, and he's like, why? I'm like, that's terrifying. What if she said no? And I, and he's like, and what if you lose all your money? And what if you hit the wrong note at the national? Like, 
And he's going through all this stuff. And I'm like, well, that's professional. I got that. And he asked me this question. He says, so basically every person you've ever dated, they've had to ask you out or they've had, I'm like, yeah, pretty much. He's like, so you've never really chosen anybody to go out with. They've chosen you and you've said, sure. And it's ended up as a relationship. And as you're sitting there, you're like, oh my God, I'm a moron. Right. Like, and and, and there was a whole bunch of other things, you know, I talked earlier about sort of integrating decision-making between the head and the heart. And I had sort of one sort of thing professionally using both. And then another thing personally, and as I learned to, to make better decisions, I mean, my entire life personally changed around. I found the partner of my dreams and and Jen, and yes, I asked her out and yeah, it was actually terrifying, but it, and she said, yes, and, yeah, and we're married. Take the risk, man. And I've learned to take more risks in my personal life, as opposed to from an area of fear, growing up with losing people, growing up with people disappointing me to saying, you know what, there's a level of risk that I'm comfortable taking in my personal life now. And the results are really awesome. And so, you know, if I look at my biggest failure, it, took me 40, what was it, 40 years <laughs> to figure that out, right? I'll be 50 in, in a couple of months. It took me 40 years to figure that out. And I'm not a big what if person. I'm not a, I don't have regrets because I truly believe that if you change any small, if I regret something, say, I wish I had of, it would change everything. I wouldn't be talking today. I would be living somewhere else. Maybe life would be great yeah. and better. I highly doubt it because I'm really happy. But so I don't live in a what if world, but it's human nature to be like, my goodness, like what well, I'm curious what would have happened. Yeah. Oh, I don't wish it happened. Sure. How has finding a life partner in Jen for the last 10 or so years, how has that changed your life and you, the way you think about career and work and everything else? You mean there's something other than career and work? <laughs> oh, wait. Well, that's what I'm that's wondering. Jen. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, it changed everything. I, I, we started dating in 2012. So we've been together nine years. We've been married. We'll be married seven in August. I mean, it changed everything. Like I said, and, and not all for the positive, by the way. I remember I used to enjoy business travel until I met mm-hmm. her. And then I hated it. And I was like, oh, this is part of my job. Yeah. You know, I used to love business dinners and I used to love sort of all of the, the things that incorporated that life. And I frankly didn't enjoy it nearly as much after meeting her. And it's funny as, as I'm on this podcast today, Jen and I were together for 385 straight nights until last night was wow. the first night we have not spent together. She actually went out of town for a night. To, she's an interior designer. She had some work to do. And I, I strangely enough, miss her, even though I have not. (laughs) And so, you know, it changed a lot. I think the other thing is that Jen, and I say this with due respect to other people that I've been with, and I apologize if you're hearing this, but it probably won't surprise you. Jen's the first person, first partner I've had who's also my best friend. I had always heard about that, but I had never believed in it. I always thought my best friend would probably be a male, probably be a friend. And I would have my, you know, girlfriend, wife or whatever. And that's great. And that's just how I was, I was wired. And uh, a surprising thing happened um, after we got married. This was at the time we got married, she was not my best friend and she's become my best friend. And, you know, that's, uh, I didn't see that coming and I'm just appreciative. That's so cool. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being so open and, and, and vulnerable and sharing so much today. As we wind down here, would love to ask you, you know, for those entrepreneurs or or venture capitalists out there, do you have any uh, advice for the ones that are maybe going through a rough time or facing, facing some challenges in their work or personal lives on maybe how to gain clarity or, or think about their positions? Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who's stuck, you know, find some way to make yourself happy or at least open-minded, take the time. No, and you know, the, I don't have the time. No, you can always find the time, find the headspace that you need to, to be in to make the right decisions. And then the first question to ask is look inward and look at sort of, you know, not what you can necessarily could do better, but you know, what are the, what's driving you and what's driving the issue? If, is there anything internally that you can control? Because what sucks is when you're failing or you're in trouble and you feel like you have no control, right? That's where, it becomes overwhelming. The key is getting an open mind space that you can make good decisions. 
and retake that control as much as possible by trying to figure out what you actually can. Love that's awesome advice. Well, thanks, Jason. If people want to reach out or get in touch, are there good ways to find out more about uh, what you're working on or reach out to you? Yeah. And I would say normally I am awesome on email and get back to everyone, but currently I'm a a little underwater given the new role and stuff. But yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as Jason Mendelson. I'm on Twitter as at Jason Mendelson. You can reach me through there. I'm on Facebook. You can leave a comment at the jaceallenmusic.com website. Those are the best ways to reach me. Awesome. And check out Jace Allen on Spotify. There you go. Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, Deezer, Amazon Music, Google Music, and uh, Sony A-Track Tapes. There you go. All right. We got it all. Thank you, Jason. This has been wonderful. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.